0: This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. Last week, we talked about spiritual federalism. That's not like a big term, but it simply meant that One representative would represent a large group of people, but to the level that those people would be counted as having done what their representative did and receiving the consequences or rewards for what that representative did. And the best example we have is Adam, as it talks about in Romans 5, that we are counted Adam's sin. And so we receive Adam's punishment. But then God chose another representative, a second Adam, and that was Jesus. And so out of God's incredible grace, God accounts to us Jesus' righteousness and obedience, and we receive the rewards that Jesus receives. But if we're going to dig into Melchizedek just a little bit more, I'd like to unpack one more theological term, and it's called biblical typology. The Old Testament is the foundation that the New Testament stands on. In the Old Testament are real people, real things, real events that also function as signs, signposts, representatives, symbols of Jesus. And they're like, they're like little puzzle pieces where you hold up a puzzle piece and you can't really tell what the bigger picture is. You see like maybe this puzzle piece is part blue and part tan. But when you finally get it as a part of the bigger puzzle, and you put it in to see a bigger, complete picture, you're like, oh, that's the edge of the sailboat. Cool. Which you couldn't see before. And so typology sort of works in hindsight. We study Jesus, and then as we flip through the Old Testament, we realize that there are these people's things and events that all this time have been pointing clearly to Jesus. We just didn't see it yet. Maybe an example would be Isaac, with Abraham's near sacrifice of him, who in Abraham's mind was dead for three days, who carries the wood for his own sacrifice up the hill, up the mountain, who has a substitution effect with this ram caught in the thicket, who happens to be on the very hill that the future sacrifices would take place on in Jerusalem. Another one may be the bronze serpent that these snakes are biting the people of Israel, and God tells Moses to make a serpent out of bronze and put it up on a a pole and Jesus points out this type and says that just like the bronze serpent was lifted up the son of man will be lifted up and all who look to him will be saved. And then the Passover in Egypt is another is another incredible type where you have the lamb, the spotless lamb and its blood is shed and the lamb's blood is painted over the doorpost and God is bringing his wrath but then he sees the obedience That these people are under the blood, and so he passes over them. His wrath passes over them. And so we see a picture of Jesus. These are all types. And now, as you as you're reading the Bible, you can start looking for these things. You can start looking for types, and they'll come to life. Tonight, our author of Hebrews wants us to see Melchizedek as a type pointing to Jesus. And if you can wrap your minds around that, which I think is pretty simple, Melchizedek is going to teach us a lot about who Jesus is. So, so far in Hebrews, right there at the beginning, it opens up with Jesus being a priest. It really gets into detail in chapter 4. Then in chapter 5, the author brings up this character, Melchizedek, out of nowhere, seemingly. He's referring back to Psalm 110, which you can go ahead and turn to. We're going to look at that in a minute. And then Twice brings up this Melchizedek character, and right in the middle, when we think we're going to get an explanation of why, the author pushes pause and then gives us a warning about checking ourselves about our salvation. And tonight, he's finally coming full circle and he's going to pick up where he left off in Hebrews 7. But we're going to begin our study in his reference in Psalm 110. If you're looking for Psalms, cut your Bible in half. If you find Isaiah, go left. Psalm 110. Last week we looked at Melchizedek in Hebrew, in Genesis chapter 14. Melchizedek functioned as both a king and a priest of what would become Jerusalem. And ironically, strangely, unexpectedly, he worships Yahweh in the middle of a very pagan country. He's this mysterious mysterious character who kind of comes in and leaves. We don't get a genealogy. We don't get his background. We don't have the date of his death. He just pops into the story and pops out. But Abraham, when he meets Melchizedek, has a really interesting transaction. Melchizedek blesses him, confirms God's blessing on him. And Abraham responds by giving an offering, a tithe, to Melchizedek. And this transaction teaches us four things, which we unpacked last week. And the four things are simply that Melchizedek is acknowledged by Abraham to be a legitimate priest of Yahweh, that Melchizedek's office of priest is by God's choice, not by a genealogy. Melchizedek stands as a representative of God to Abraham, and Abraham honors him as the superior. Melchizedek is the greater. Abraham recognizes himself as the inferior. So Melchizedek seems to come out of nowhere. It Disappears into history he's never spoken of again. Until after David is told that this coming Messiah, the Redeemer, promised since Genesis 3, is going to come through his lineage, his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson, Somewhere down the line is going to be the Redeemer. David is writing a song to the Lord and God hits him with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he writes a conversation between Yahweh God and the coming Redeemer. He is, he's peeking in on a conversation happening in heaven between God the Father and God the Son. And, and David acknowledges this, this Lord as Adonai. And that's what we're going to pick up tonight. It's fascinating. Psalm 110, verse 1. And the Lord, you'll see all capital letters, that's the name Yahweh. And Yahweh says to my Lord, wait a minute, whoever would David acknowledge as his Adonai except God himself? So we already see this interesting dynamic of who God is. And Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Who is worthy to sit on the throne, on God's throne? The Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter. Oh, check this out. Zion is the mountain that the temple will be built on, but a scepter represents royalty. So we have this this play back and forth between royalty and a spiritual religious side. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely. So this ruling, this kingship, on the day of your power in holy garments. Well, who wears holy garments? The priests. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. That would be fun to explain another day. Verse four, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You, this is Yahweh speaking to this Lord, David's descendant, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So I'm going to break this down very quickly before we jump into Hebrews 7. This phrase, Yahweh has sworn, is really big. We're supposed to stop and go, what? Why on earth would God ever need to make an oath or to promise something? Everything God says is true, is perfectly concrete, because God himself is truth. There is no lie, there's no deception within him. So he has no need to try to make promises or swear by something. So why is he making an oath? He's making it for our benefit. He's saying, I need you to pay attention right now. I'm about to do something big. Pay attention. Now when God established the priesthood through the tribe of Levi, through Aaron, Moses' brother, God did not swear an oath to establish that priesthood. But this priesthood is initiated by an oath of God. Something big is happening here. It goes on to say, you are a priest forever. Well, in this former covenant, the one that that David knows, the priests die. They're a priest for 30, 40 years, usually beginning about 30 years old, and, and they die But this coming one is going to live forever. He's going to be a descendant who is a priest forever, somehow because he's a part of this priesthood of Melchizedek. And that says that he's in the order of Melchizedek. Well, the only way to be a high priest in the Levitical order, in the Jewish priesthood, is to be born a priest. You see, they, they think differently than we do. To be a pastor in the United States, you kind of have two ends of the spectrum and everywhere in between. On one end, it's like, hey, you're a really good public speaker and you slept near a Gideon Bible in a hotel once. You should be our pastor. And then on the other side of the scale is like rigorous training. You have to pass exams and you have to have certain levels of education and you have to be mentored by someone to be a pastor. But no matter where you are on the scale, none of those compare to the Jewish priesthood because the only way that you are a priest in the Jewish priesthood is one, you had to be born into the right family, into the priestly family. You couldn't be born in the tribe of Judah or Gad or Reuben and say, someday I want to be a priest. No. Then they go through rigorous studies. They would have the the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, memorized. That's the first quarter of your Bible, memorized at the beginning of their studies. They would go through constant purifications, constant um, lifestyle restrictions. It was very difficult to be a priest, and so they were honored. They were recognized as people that knew God's law. They were not there just because that they were good at something. They were there because of rigorous training and the right family. But this priesthood under Melchizedek Melchizedek lived 500 years before the priesthood's going to be established. He wasn't a priest because of birth. He was a priest because God picked him. And David isn't from Levi. David knows that. He's from the tribe of Judah. David can't have a descendant that's going to be a priest. Unless that priest is of a different order in order of Melchizedek. What David is prophesying here is a full departure from everything they've ever understood about a priesthood. God is preparing them for something new. So Melchizedek is gonna be a type of foreshadowing of Jesus and revealing that Jesus is actually superior to the entire Levitical priesthood. So we're gonna ask the question tonight, what does Melchizedek teach us about Jesus? And why is it important that Jesus' priesthood is superior to Aaron's? Wouldn't it just be so simple to say, Jesus is superior to everything and everyone, End. Well, yeah, that would be easier. But there's a reason that our author wants us to stop and think about this, because it teaches us something. So let's turn our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. We're actually going to begin at the very last couple of verses of chapter 6. We're going to dive into Melchizedek. You guys ready? Gotta have your thinking caps on. Last week, you were given all the building blocks to understand this, and you've got federalism and typology down, so now you have the tools. So we're going to dig in to some of the more complex passages in all of the Bible. Let's start in chapter 6, verse 19. This is where our author picks up with this conversation about Kizadek. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. After having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, So our salvation is secure. It's locked down. We can rest that we're saved because of who Jesus is and because he is a part of this mysterious order, this mysterious priesthood. And now let's get into it. Chapter seven, verse one. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning after the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, to Melchizedek, Abraham apportioned a 10th part of everything. He is by first translation of his name, King of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, and that is king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So the first thing we see here is because Abraham gave tithes to him and received the blessing, Melchizedek is a legitimate priest of Yahweh, of the Most High God. Then our author of Hebrews grabs onto his name and shows that he is representing God, we we see that this coming Messiah in Jeremiah Jeremiah 23 is going to be called the the righteous branch. Melchizedek is the king of righteousness. We see in Isaiah chapter 9 that Jesus is going to be called the prince of peace, and this is the king of peace. So right away, Melchizedek is standing as a representative of God, and that's the second point that we're making here. Verse 3, he's without father or mother or genealogy. The author's purpose here for raising the topic of Melchizedek is because he wants us to see that he is resembling Jesus. Our author is saying, this is a type. Pay attention. We're going to learn something from him. That's why he uses the word resembling in, chapter, in verse 3. He's a type. He's going to teach us something. A priest forever And so the author is going to fuse Psalm 110 that we just read with Genesis 14 together. And he's pointing out that Melchizedek didn't have a genealogy. He didn't have a background. We don't know who his mother or father is. In fact, we never hear of him again. It's like he just continued being a priest forever. And our author is saying, just like it's sort of suggested that he's a priest forever, since we don't know when he died, this is just like the Son of God. He's going to be a priest forever. And this is a huge key to understanding where he's going here in a few verses. I want to pause for a second. Melchizedek represents God. Did you know what the word Christian means? It means little Christs. We were first called Christians in the book of Acts, and it was because people are walking around, they didn't have pictures of Jesus. But they would see these people that were given the teachings of Jesus. They would see these people operating in power and authority and teaching scripture like Jesus. And they would be like, whoa, it's like Jesus. It's like a little Christ. Elevate men and women of God. Who are you representing Jesus to? And how is your representation? When you're at school, are you representing Jesus? Are you showing them a God of peace? Are you showing them a God of righteousness? Or is your lifestyle not lining up with the character of God? We should be men and women of God who are representing Christ in our families. Ooh, that's some of the hardest parts. How do you represent Jesus with your brothers and sisters or with your parents? We should represent Jesus at school. We should represent Jesus at work. We should represent Jesus when we're alone. Let's let that sink in. We are his representatives. Verse 4. So, our first point is that Melchizedek represents Jesus. He's a type. Our second point is that Jesus is is superior to the Levitical priesthood. Verse 4 See how great this man, talking about Melchizedek, was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, Gave a tenth of the spoils. Abraham was the patriarch, the most important person on the planet, carrying the promises of God. Through Abraham, the whole world is going to be saved. How great must this guy be if Abraham is treating him as a superior? Verse 5, And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. If that was hard to track, let's start with this idea of from their brothers. The Jewish priests were commanded by God to receive tithes from the Jewish people, from the Israelites. But the priests aren't superior to them. They have a different role. They operate in the role of a priest, but they're not greater than the people that they're receiving tithes from. Why? They're they're all from the same family. They're all brothers. There's no greater or lesser here. This is God assigning one tribe a role of priesthood and the others to give tithes. But there's something different going on with Abraham and Melchizedek. There is a difference. They are not equals. There is a greater and there is a lesser. So, how great was this man that the relationship was different? Shockingly, Abraham, who is the most important person alive, honors him as the superior. So, what's going on here is we have that spiritual federalism that I was talking about. Abraham is representing all of the nation of Israel that's still yet to be born. He is the spiritual federal head of all 12 tribes of his future descendants, including. Levi, including the priesthood. And so if Abraham submits to Melchizedek and Abraham represents all of Israel, including the priesthood, then Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to Abraham's descendants and priesthood. Did you follow that? It's important. Nod your heads if you're following me. Do you want me to say it again? Melchizedek, Abraham. Melchizedek's priesthood, the priesthood that would come from Abraham. There's a greater and a lesser. That's what he wants us to spot. Let's keep going in verse eight. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. So what's the problem with the Levitical priesthood? They're people, they're human, they're mortal, they're going to die. But there is a superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood. Jesus is far different than any of the priests in the Levitical priesthood. He's not mortal, and and proven by the testimony of his resurrection, he is eternal, making him the ability to be a priest forever. So let's tie it together, and our author is going to do that right here in verse 9. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham... Through Abraham to Melchizedek, for he was still, Levi, was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. It's that federalism. Jesus' priesthood is superior to the Aaron's. All the Israelite high priests were descendants of Aaron. Aaron was a descendant of Levi. Levi was a descendant of Abraham. Therefore, Abraham stood as the representative of the Levitical priesthood. When Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, honoring him as superior, it is as if all of the priests that would follow him also gave tithes to Melchizedek and honoring him as a superior. So, how does Melchizedek foreshadow Jesus? Let's put the chart up on the screen. Look at all these comparisons Melchizedek, king and priest, Jesus is both king and priest. Yes. Melchizedek was a legitimate priest of Yahweh, despite not descending from Levi. Jesus is the same. Melchizedek's office was by God's sovereign choice. Jesus is is the same. Here's where it gets fun. Melchizedek was a human priest representing his people to God. Jesus, because he was truly man, is a human priest, and he represents us to God. Melchizedek, as a man, held the role, a partial role, of representing God to Abraham like no one ever has before. Jesus, being fully God, represents God to us perfectly so that we can know God through knowing Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, Jesus is greater than the entire Levitical priesthood. Melchizedek symbolizes a priest who lives forever. Jesus is a priest who is the eternal son of God. So again and again and again, Melchizedek is a type that teaches teaches us about Jesus. So why is it important to spend all this time talking about Jesus being superior to the priesthood? Couldn't we just say Jesus is superior to everything? And this is why it's important. Let's keep going. We're gonna pick up in verse 11 in a second. Where did the Levitical priesthood come from? Moses leads the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, and he brings them to Mount Sinai. And and at Mount Sinai, God blesses them with the gift of having his presence, his manifest presence, in the middle of their camp. And it's, it's seen as a pillar of fire or a cloud of smoke. God's presence manifested at the center of their camp in a way that no other people have ever experienced it since Adam and Eve walked with God's presence in the garden. It's supposed to remind us of that. But a holy God cannot dwell with unholy people. So God makes a covenant with them. I will be with you, and you will be a holy people. How? You're going to have to live set apart from everyone else. If you're going to be holy to me, You're going to have to be different from everything. And so God gives them the law and it sets them apart what they eat, what they wear, cleansing laws, and everything else. But the most significant thing that He did is He set up a way for them to have their sins purified. And He did this through sacrifices. Spotless animals would die as substitutes for the people who deserve to die for their sin. Did you follow that? The wages of sin is death. If I sin, I deserve death. So God said, you can slay an animal and I will accept this animal's death on your behalf as a substitute. Are you seeing a type of Jesus yet? So cool. So he set up this covenant, these sacrifices. In short, it was God's covenant with Israel through Moses that established the Levitical priesthood. If you have an egg, you know that a chicken exists. The Levitical priesthood is there because of God's covenant. Chapter seven, verse 11. If perfection, we're answering the question why this is important, that Jesus is superior to the Levitical priesthood. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, And indeed, the law given to the people established that priesthood. The law here represents the covenant. The covenant established that priesthood. Why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. If there is a new priesthood, it signifies there must be a new covenant. That old covenant was called the Mosaic Covenant. Why would God speak of another priestly order in Psalm 110 if Aaron's covenant, if Aaron's priesthood was sufficient to deal with sin? It's because it didn't. It didn't deal with sin. It was imperfect, incomplete, insufficient to truly save. The sacrifices only covered past sins like a Band-Aid with the first lustful thought or unkind word, and you needed to give another sacrifice. So you just spent your whole life with perpetual sacrifices. Priests are dying, your sacrifices are never good enough, and no matter how many sacrifices you give, it doesn't deal with our sinful heart. It never gets inside. So when the priesthood is changed, the law, the covenant, must be changed too. And this is an enormous claim, because it means that the old covenant is temporary, the old priesthood is temporary meaning that there's a new one coming and a new covenant coming in fact god has been telling them this for a while in jeremiah 31 verse 31 actually the author of hebrews is going to quote this whole thing in chapter 8 jeremiah 31 31 behold the days are coming declares yahweh when i will make you all read it it's not up there a new covenant The days are coming where I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. A new covenant is coming. A new priesthood signifies that it's happening. It's important for Jesus' priesthood to be superior to the Levitical covenant because A superior priesthood means a superior covenant, a better covenant, a more perfect covenant. And this is exactly what we see with Jesus. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the cup and he held it up and he said, take and drink this. Why? This is my blood poured out as the new covenant. This is what Jesus was talking about. He wasn't making stuff up off the top of his head. He was pointing to Jeremiah 31. He was pointing back to the old Levitical priesthood. It's being torn away and there's a new one. And this representing my blood is establishing, ratifying the new covenant. And it's a better one. There's no more need for animal sacrifices. There's no more, no more concerns about the next priest dying. Everything is changing because of Jesus. We don't have to fear about our salvation. If you have committed your life to Christ, if you have repented of your sin and made him your Lord, you don't have to work hard enough to stay saved. You don't have to go to every altar call. You don't have to say a certain number of Hail Marys. You don't have to worry about your salvation because now your high priest is not a flawed human being nor is the sacrifice for your sin a temporary one but as long as your high priest lives as long as his sacrifice was perfect your sins are atoned for and your salvation is secure how long? will the eternal son of God live? How long will his holiness be worthy? It's eternal. We can rest in our salvation. So if Jesus is a priest forever, then his salvation is forever. Verse 13, he, talking about Jesus, of whom these things are said, belong to a different tribe, And no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. They've never been a priest before. For it's clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what have we said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. So why is Jesus worthy to be a priest even though he doesn't come from the tribe of Levi? Because he was of an ancestry that lives forever. He is the son of God. So it doesn't matter what tribe he's born to. What matters is that his life is indestructible. Verse 17, it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus' unique office comes by God's sovereign choice, not an arbitrary genealogy. And this prophecy of Psalm 110 points to the coming high priest operating forever in his role. This could only be done by God. Jesus must be God. So his priesthood would last as long as he lives. Making his covenant eternal. Therefore, verse 18, the former regulation, the former covenant is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. What's the whole point of this thing? The whole point of Jesus' priesthood, the whole point of his sacrifice, the whole point of his coming to earth and dying on a cross is so that God can dwell with his people, that his people will be holy and set apart and can dwell in his presence. That's what it all comes down to, That we can draw near to God. Jesus' inauguration does two things. It sets aside the imperfect covenant and it replaces it with a better hope, a better covenant. Imagine, like, a paper check. You know, someone fills out a check and the check represents money that you don't have. And this check is paper, it is worthless. The only value it has is the promise of the person that gave it to you that there's money to back it up. Are you following me so far? This old covenant, this Levitical priesthood, is like that paper check. And it's good, because the one who wrote out the check is good for it. But Jesus is the fulfillment of that check. That check has now been turned into something tangible for us. Jesus came. So now how much does that check have value? None. Put it on the nail. Throw it away. It's already been fulfilled. It's been replaced with what is good, what is perfect, what is holy. Jesus, his priesthood has displaced. What was good and appointed by God is now no longer valid because Jesus is here. We can rest in his priesthood. How big a deal is this covenant? Verse 20, and it was not without an oath, Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath. When God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor, the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore he is able to save Completely. Those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. When will your priest stop interceding for you? Never. He's a priest forever. He saves completely. The Levitical priesthood came into existence without God making an oath. Had God established it with an oath at Sinai with Moses, then it would have lasted forever it would have lasted the length of God's life. But he didn't. This one is better, superior, because God established it with an oath so Jesus' priesthood will last as long as God lives, as long as God is truthful. So for all these reasons, I've got a list. For all these reasons, Jesus can guarantee a perfect and final covenant between God and man. First, he is king and priest. Second, his priesthood is by God's choice. Third, his priesthood makes a way for us to enter God's presence. That's the whole goal, for us to draw near to God. Fourth, being God, he stands as God's perfect representative so we can know God. Fifth, being human but sinless, he's our perfect priest representing us to God. Being holy, he gave himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sin. Seven, the covenant that accompanies his priesthood is totally sufficient to perfectly and eternally erase sin. And eighth, being the eternal son of God, his priesthood and covenant are eternal. And what do these add up to? Jesus saves completely. He is everything we need. Let's finish out this section. Verse 26, such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike other priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day by day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weaknesses, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever." Now, the main point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Spiritual federalism, this is where it ties together. Pay attention. Our representative goes behind the veil into the presence of God as our representative. He is holy, and he doesn't need to give sacrifices for his own sin. Therefore, all of those that he represents are seen by God as holy. Oh, that is good news, because I know my thoughts. I know my sin. But God sees you and me as holy because Jesus is our representative. And there doesn't need to be any more sacrifices for sin, because as long as God sees his son as holy, he'll continue to see us as holy. The sacrificial system is fulfilled. It's no longer needed. His sacrifice was perfect and final. I challenge you, make Jesus your high priest. If you, don't, if you don't know him, if you haven't given your life to him, this is what you're coming into. This isn't like a standard altar call. It's like, your life will be better. No, I can't promise that. Scripture says, watch out. Things are gonna get really hard. But I can tell you what is true, is that now, Though your sins are like scarlet, his sacrifice makes them white as snow, though you are going to sin again, He stands before God as your holy representative, so that God sees you as holy as His Son, and you will receive the rewards, the heavenly rewards, the eternal life rewards that his son earned with his perfect obedience and righteousness. Isn't that amazing? if you guys can grasp this, you are a light years ahead of most Christians whose Bibles are collecting dust somewhere. You're understanding some of the depths of why the cross is so important. No sin can block Jesus from saving you. Nothing in your past, nothing in your future, can block your perfect high priest from being good enough. Whenever I think of people that are too far gone to be saved, I think of this book that my dad and I read. It was a, sort of a biography that, of a man that my dad met. He came out of Vietnam. His name was Mac Gober. And Vietnam had so damaged him that the only way that he found any sort of separation from the demons that he dealt with and the stresses and the pain that he dealt with was to just get on a Harley and ride and do drugs all day and all night. And he joined the Hells Angels. In fact, he became so bad and so violent that the Hells Angels kicked him out. They didn't want him anymore. He became filthy and disgusting. He would stand in in grocery store lines and just urinate on himself and didn't care. He would hurt people for no reason, constantly in drugs, constantly against the law. And one day, a knock came at the crack house he was living at. And he opened the door, and here's this clean-cut young man holding Bible tracts, asking if he wanted to talk about Jesus, and Matt Gober responded by grabbing the kid by the shirt, pulling him in the door, and beating him, and then throwing him back out into the front yard. Bloody. This was a guy who was past saving. Several weeks later, another knock at the door, and it was the same young man again. And Mac did the same thing. Pulled him in, beat him, threw him out of the front yard. But lying on the floor of his little house, a track had fallen out of his pocket. And one day when the the pressure and the pressing conviction of his vile lifestyle and his sin was on him, he found that track that fell out of a kid's pocket, convicted him, and he gave his life to Jesus. And he would spend the rest of his life with a ministry to recovering drug addicts, teaching them about the God who saved his life. Why could Mac stand before God in salvation? It wasn't by anything he ever earned or did. It's because a gracious God would send his son, Jesus, who would live a perfect and holy life, and die on behalf of Mac's sin. Then defeat death with his resurrection and go and stand before God as Mac's representative so that when God sees Mac, he sees him under the federal head of Jesus Christ and his holiness. There is no sin or lifestyle. Who are you praying for? Who are you not praying for? because you're so convinced they're too far gone. Let's start believing that God is bigger than sin. Let's start believing that Jesus' redemption is a thousand times and a million times and infinitely times more than what we can sin. If you're the one in sin, I challenge you to repent and give your life to your sufficient high priest. And the second challenge I have for you is to not to give up on your unsaved loved ones. Thank you, Lord, for this complex section in Hebrews chapter seven. Wow, we tackled a whole chapter tonight. Oh, Father. Lord, I pray that even, even if we don't understand all of it, that you're giving us one more piece of the puzzle, that you'll tie together with a bigger picture Lord, open our minds. Let us see you for who you are. Let us revel and worship in the reality of what you did for us. The complexity and beauty of what happened at the cross and what Jesus is doing for us right now at the right hand, at your right hand, interceding for us, representing us, loving us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. And a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.